Henry and Azra, what amazing divrei Torah you offered us, both of you. What would it sound like to hear God speak, and what should an illustration of that look like? How does God's general speaking differ from God's private speaking to Moses? Awesome questions. And the idea that Judaism is God's second creation, that after speaking to create the world, God spoke to create the rules of Judaism? I have never thought of that before. And Henry, what a sophisticated, complex analysis of perfection and imperfection, purity and holiness. Together, you two have given us so much to think about. The question of perfection is such a good one for this particular Shabbat, because we all just experienced Yom Kippur, as you were telling us, Henry, when we spent 24 hours reviewing our mistakes, our shortcomings, our failures, basically our imperfections. And I think a lot of people misunderstand Yom Kippur, thinking that its goal is perfection, that we're beating ourselves up. You can understand why, because we're pounding on our chest, that we would think we're beating ourselves up for being imperfect. But that is actually a misunderstanding of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, as you taught us, Henry, is a day that fully acknowledges the inevitability of human imperfection and tells us that rather than try to hide those imperfections or cover up those imperfections or ignore our mistakes and shortcomings, we should name them and account for them. And that A, God will be there with us, ready to forgive us and embrace us in our imperfection, and B, with reflection and proper intention, we can do better. Now, I will acknowledge as you so clearly showed us, that the priestly service of the temple was premised on perfection. But that was a grasping, a very human grasping that we can all relate to at something impossible, as you said. An attempted overlay of control on chaos. And look how that went. The temple ended up in rubble. And the Jewish people went on living in an extremely imperfect world. We are not perfect and never will be. And striving per for perfection is a recipe for misery. And the exacting judgment involved in holding ourselves up to impossible standards harms us. And I say that to you, Henry, and I say it to myself. I think we both have this challenge, and probably other people in this room do too. And perfectionism, that attempt to control, is harming of self. And I, our, if we are like that, our task in life, our big life lesson is learning how to love our best efforts, no matter how they come out, even if they fall short from the standards we had in our minds, and, having, having, and loving ourselves for the effort we're making, regardless of the outcome. Not only are we not perfect, but life is definitely not perfect. Things do not go the way we want, often. And we often do not have control over how they go. Sometimes life completely falls apart, and we put it back together the very best we can. Not even God is perfect. People say God is perfect, but look at the God of the Torah. The God who created the world and everything in it that you talked about from your illustrated Bible, Ezra, that God regretted destroying the world in the time of Noah. And that God decided to change and never do it again. And that God heard an appeal in the book of Deuteronomy from five women about inheritance law and acknowledged that God's own laws were wrong and should change. That God self-reflects. That God listens and tries to do better. That is not a perfect God, but it is a God in process, which is a pretty good model for how to be.
the rabbis actually say, as you taught us, Henry, that a, that a person who does wrong and then corrects it is better than a person who never does wrong. The process of learning is the goal of Judaism for God and for us, more than the outcome of having it all together. That, as we all know, never lasts for more than 30 seconds. After a day of fasting and focusing on our mistakes, not with the goal of becoming perfect, but with the goal of accepting imperfection and trying to do a bit better, we turn to the holiday of Sukkot, which is where we are now. We build a booth called a sukkah, and we dwell in it. The sukkah is an illustration of imperfection. It is rickety on purpose. It is not supposed to be sturdy. It's not supposed to have a leak-proof roof. It's not supposed to even have four full walls. The rain is supposed to drip through. It's also designed to be impermanent. You know that when you build it, in the process of building it, you know you're about to take it down again. What is the point of that? When you dwell in it, you are literally sitting inside of imperfection and impermanence. And here's the kicker. Here's where we come to what you said, Azra. Sukkot is called, as I've been saying kind of in this service, Sukkot is called Zman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. Why? Because the sukkah reminds us of when we were wandering in the wilderness and slept out in the elements in booths. And the rabbis say that that time in the midbar, the wilderness, in all of the chaos and lack of control and unknowns should be read not midbar, wilderness, but medaber, speaking, as in God was speaking. That, our tradition tells us, was the time when God's voice was most audible by all the people. That was the time we felt closest to God. Not in our secure houses, not once we were settled and things were under control, but in the midst of the journey, in the midst of the unpredictable, in the mess of it all, that's when the rippling sound that you picture in your illustrated Bible, Ezra, was most accessible. And sitting in this flimsy handmade booth that lets in the rain and the wind and from which we can see the stars, singing and eating and being with friends is the closest we get to that experience. And that is Mansim Chatenu. That is the time of our joy. Three things to teach you about Sukkot relevant to these themes. First, it is a tradition in Sukkot to bring ushpizin into the sukkah. People decorate the walls of the sukkah with images or sayings of people who aren't here anymore so that all of the important people are with us in our sukkah. It could be Abraham and Sarah. It could be Moses or Deborah. Or it could be people we love who we miss. Because in this highly imperfect world, not everyone we want to be here is physically here, but we can bring their memories right into the rest of life with us, and that's Ushbizin. Second, there are Simanim, the Lulav and the Etrog, which I showed you earlier. Four species of plant life that grow in different terrains, desert, riverside, hillside, and the freshest smelling fruit you ever could smell. And these tell us that as imperfect as our sukkah is, we are always turning toward, moving toward life. New things are growing and sprouting all the time, delights to the senses. Life keeps bearing fruit. There are new things to experience and enjoy every day. And finally, in a footnote of the Mishnah, in the, in the Kahari Mishnah, we find a halachic note about Sukkot. It is meritorious to bring your most beautiful objects from your house into the sukkah a particularly valuable vase, for example, or an ornate carpet, even though it might rain, even though it's outside, even though it's temporary, even though it's so far from perfect. And that's because we don't hold back on beauty. When given an opportunity to rejoice, we bring all the beauty we've got, and we rejoice. 
So those rules God spoke in Parshat Amor and in the Mishnah and in the Talmud to create Judaism, a lot of them are about creating a structure of time, timeline, and ritual to enable us to live within imperfection. Our imperfection, God's imperfection, life's radical imperfection. These set times and ritual observances call upon us to remember, to turn toward life, to behold beauty, and to seize every opportunity to rejoice. So let us rejoice. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom.